Good evening and welcome to the Apple Store Soho for tonight's uh, Meet the Filmmaker event. Uh, tonight we're very pleased to have director Mark Forster joining us to talk about some of his upcoming projects, uh, including the uh, success of his recent films, including the uh, 007 thriller Quantum of Solace, and other recent hits including The Kite Runner and um, Stranger Than Fiction. Um, he's joined by guest moderator David Schwartz of the Museum of Moving Image. Uh, they will be coming out shortly, but first we'd like you to enjoy the trailer for Quantum of Solace, which will soon be available for download from the iTunes store. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mark Forster and tonight's guest moderator, David Schwartz. Okay, well, um, I'm re really glad to have this chance to meet the man who directed such an amazingly diverse group of films, including... Uh, Monster, he really came on the scene with Monster's Ball, uh, which um, starred, of course, Halle Berry. Um, he's made Finding Neverland and The Kite Runner and Stranger Than Fiction uh, with Will Ferrell and, of course, um, Quantum of Solace. So um, it's an amazing body of work. And I was trying to figure out like, what holds your films together. I think a lot of people who have written about you have said that you, you know, make very different movies. Um, so what do you th <laughs> when you hear that, what do you think? No, I think all those films have a common thread and they all, you know, if you start stripping down uh, sort of the, the canvases, then you, you yeah. sort of uh, can see what the characters are really about. And uh, I think all the characters are connected and, uh, and have a sort of a connective tissue. And, uh, you know, ultimately, I only can make a film if I personally have a passion for it and connect with the character and the material. What do you think the connecting tissue is? Uh, I mean, to me, I, I think your films are incredibly vibrant and, and sort of intense. The characters are often kind of a, uh, sort of brooding in a way and kind of almost like loners or sort of outsider types. Yeah, that's definitely the, it's sort <laughs> of, they all sort of have a uh, characteristic of being emotional repressed characters too, right. who ultimately go through a change um, but uh, it's comes uh, it's because I, you know I'm, I'm from Switzerland and I come from a culture which is emotional repressed right. so so in, in a sense it's it's mostly that I, I can connect with with the, sort of the culture I grew up with and yeah. most of the 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 lead characters are male and that's ultimately you know with even with Bond you know you see Bond and he's a, an emotionally incredible repressed character and uh, and is unable to show or share his emotions and i think it's always i mean ultimately i feel in life what is what it is all about to be able to uh, open your heart and uh, and i think for that journey is not that as easy and i feel, find that it's always very complex and different and in in very very various stories it's sort of has a it's differently uh, uh, you know, characters kind of have a different journey. Yeah. And yeah. even though you you said you're you're making these films from a male perspective and you have these male heroes, you also have interesting female characters in all your films who are, um, and and the whole idea of of how men and women try to come together but find it hard. You you know you have. I, I find women in generally more complex emotionally also than men. I think men are much more simplistic. As, as characters, their motivations and the way men behave is, is much more, uh, I think, I don't want to call it one-dimensional, but it it's definitely has a certain, uh, certain rules to it. And, and I think uh, wom women are, are, I think, uh, much more complex and interesting, and, and there's a certain depth that I think they carry with them uh, men don't have. Yeah. Um, 
you know, the character of Halle Berry in Monsters Ball or Maggie Gyllenhaal's character in, in, in Stranger in Fiction, you know, those are characters I, I find fascinating, but I think characters where men can learn out from. Yeah, and what's interesting, of course, about Quantum of Solace is that on one hand, it probably has like the most action, you know, minute for minute of, of any James Bond film. I mean, it delivers in that, but it also has this kind of intensity and kind of strong... Um, psychological overtones that you're talking about, very sort of brooding, interesting characters. Uh, yeah, you know, with Quantum of Solace, it was an interesting, for me, it was more an, of an experiment than anything else, in a sense that I, at first I didn't want to do the film, and I thought it's not my genre, it's not really what I'm so familiar with, and there wasn't a script, so there was a release date, and there was a, a date where we were supposed to start principal photography, but there wasn't really a script in place, so... I was very hesitant because I never made that kind of decision. I felt like usually you, you work on a script for a year or two years and, and it just takes time to, to develop and, and shape. And uh, so, and there we, would ha we had like a, a few weeks to actually get a script and I was scouting the world, looking for locations and, and saying, oh, this looks like a Bond location. This is sort of what I have in mind. And there were certain themes I wanted to, 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 to deal with. But, and I, I knew the Bond films I liked were the early Bond films from the, from the 60s, uh, like from Russia with Love or New Majesty's Secret Service or Goldfinger and so on. So I, I felt like that's sort of the territory I wanted to, to be in. And, and it was just, it was a very, you know, it was an interesting journey for me, but it was definitely a, a lesson learned that you need, a, you need to start off with a strong script in your hand. You just can't start pre-production and, yeah. and trying to wing it as you go along. And didn't you say, like, sort of say no thanks at the beginning? I mean, when, they, when, when you were asked to do the film, wasn't your first reaction like... Yeah, it took me like a month to come around and my, my deciding factor ultimately was meeting with Daniel Craig and feeling that he is really a, a very smart, intelligent and truthful actor and I said I would love to work with him. And then my crew around me, my editor, my cinematographer said, oh, they offered you a bond that's film history, you have to do it. Right. And I said, okay, <laughs> let, let's do it. And it was an incredible adventure, I'm very thankful I made it, I, I, you know, it became the most successful bond ever. And in it's that made sense, about six hundred million dollars so far. So yeah, something like that. And <laughs> I didn't like follow that. it yeah. <laughs> completely. But oh, that's an applause I, I, for six hundred million dollars. <laughs> yes. Okay. For, thank you. But uh, I, I'm just yeah. glad because you know ultimately I was thinking that making that movie hasn't really an upside from for me. The because if I would if if I would set the the series into a sand, and and it would and it wouldn't make any money, then it would, it would really harm the smaller movies I, I, I love making. If you ruined it. You, you were yeah. afraid like you could blow, you could, you could yeah. blow like the whole... Oh, absolutely. <laughs> You're under this immense amount of pressure and you think, oh, nobody will go and see the movie and if it's not a success, then it would really would have harmed the, my, my sort of the, for me to try to make smaller movies. And even if it's a huge success, what it has been now, the only thing really what comes out of it that I can make other big Hollywood blockbusters, but that's yeah. not necessarily my intent. Was part of what, uh, what drew you to doing the James Bond movie, the um, wanting to do a change from your previous film, which was um, The Kite Runner, which I'm sure was a, a grueling experience for you to make. And, uh, yeah, the, yeah, the Kite Runner was very difficult. I mean, there were several 
difficulties. I mean, the first it was the adaptation of a beloved book, and you meet so many people, and I say, oh, this is my favorite book, don't ruin it. <laughs> so, so I worked with the screenplay, uh, with the screenwriter David Benioff and the author Khaled Hosseini on the script very much, because I knew in a film, to uh, based on such a book, you only can try to capture its spirit. And it was very important for me to shoot it in Dari, in the original language, and uh, make it as authentic as possible. Um, Ultimately, I, I was really pleased with the film and what, what we were able to capture, but it was a very hard, hard thing because uh, a hard process because you resolve your problems creatively because the because it has no stars and it's subtitled. The studio doesn't really support you with an enormous amount of money, so you have to constantly creatively solve your problems. On something like Quantum, you solve a lot of the problems through money. You you and you have an incredible team behind you which solves them for you, and you yeah. just say, look. I want this, this is the vision I have, this is what I, I, I sort of want to manifest, and you have people who, who are there to, to help you, and, and, and Kite Runner was a much more complex kind of situation. Well, another thing that holds your films together is a very strong sense of place, of atmosphere, and of, of sort of capturing the location you're working in, and, and, the, and um, that works, I think, in an interesting way in, the, in Quantum of Solace, because some of the scenes that you devise and the chases and, and action really grow out of the, these incredible places that you film, like Siena, all these amazing scenes in Siena and Bolivia. Could you talk about your work with location? Yeah, I always believe that locations are, in general, a character in, 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 in a movie. Uh, in, in a Bond film, more than, than in any other movie, I feel they're characters themselves. Um, you know, in a sense, I think every detail you see visually uh, paints a canvas and an emotional texture you want to portray as a filmmaker. And, uh, you know, on one hand, yes, you have uh, in the foreground the actor who, who carries a certain uh, emotional intensity, but the background is as important, and it is so important also how you capture that background with the actor in it, and, and in terms of lens or color or, or texture. And, and I felt like I wanted to create something, uh, a journey in Bond, a visual journey, which uh, ends up at the end at this uh, place in, in the desert. And, in, in Chile, which is is here is Bolivia, but which is sort of almost this this very abstract location, which almost could be out of an Antonioni movie or it could be like set on another planet, which is it's very not very typical for Bond film, sort of to go against the the grain. But uh, Siena, uh, what happened there? We at the beginning when I came to Siena, I to scout. I knew that uh, the film will start 20 minutes after Casino Royale has ended. Right. And uh, we would start with a car cha chase, end up in a safe house in Siena, and then I started scouting Siena, and they showed me these sort of cisterns underneath the city where, where the water runs through was built by the Romans, and I thought it was very interesting. And, and I thought, okay, I could start this, this sort of intercutting parallel action between the horse chase and Bond chasing the assassin. And I, I thought that would, this parallel storytelling in general I like in, 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 in yeah. my movies. I have done it since Monsters Ball, or even everything put together, the little film I did before that. Right. And I, I did it here a few times, also in the opera sequence. You have a similar uh, parallel storytelling at the end as well. Uh, I just feel like if you have, a s like, in parallel action, you can say something without dialogue and still move the, fo the story forward through a lot of symbolism. Uh, one of the things you have to do if you're directing a Bond film is is pick the Bond girl, you know, pick the, uh, and you and you have an, and you found a very interesting actress and um, you did a few things different with her. She doesn't have like the big, 
you know, sex scene that everybody expects to see, and she's a real interesting character. So could you talk about finding Olga Kurienko and yeah, what you I mean, to do the, with her? The, the idea for me was I wanted to sort of find uh, sort of a mirror image to Bond, sort of like, like someone who he would reflect on and someone who is sort of a mirror to Bond who would say things Bond himself wouldn't say mm. because Bond wouldn't talk wouldn't be able to talk about his uh, his emotional texture and, and his emotions but the girl would so that they both have similar motivations and similar characteristics that they sort of could play off each other in that sense and I felt like it's more interesting to create that Bond girl who doesn't you know go to bed with him yeah. and we have the second Bond girl uh, uh, Gemma Atterton, uh, who plays Agent Fields, who does go to bed with strawberry him. Fields, yeah, okay. Strawberry Fields. Yeah, Strawberry Fields, yes. <laughs> yeah. And then you also have this interesting thing going on bec with um, Matthew Amalric, this great French actor um, who you know, plays the villain, but he's not the typical villain. He's not sort of the over-the-top villain. And it gives the film a real interesting quality where it's not quite... You, it's a little difficult to sort of make... Judgments on the characters. Yeah, I, I felt also it. You know, it used to be in the Cold War that you had the 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 villain and the good guys, and I think today that world sort of melted. You don't know anymore who are the good guys and who are the villains are in this in the world today, and uh, and now more than ever, if, well, as we have seen what happened with the sort of economic breakdown, uh, like so many things are happening. But that I felt like that the villain and, and Bond have to get closer to one another and sort of overlap each other. And I find it more interesting as characters is, is if they're not as distinct. The, the villain has some, some positive qualities and negatives and so have, has Bond. Yeah. Um, what uh, were some of your favorite sort of action scenes to dream up? I, I, you know, the, the dog fight is great. That's sort of an old-fashioned you know, uh, fight uh, with airplanes. Um, there's some like very... Some some things we've never seen before in Bond films. Uh, yeah, I I just was inspired more. Uh, like I love those uh, films from the '60s, also from Hitchcock and so in that era, uh, like North yeah. by Northwest, uh, even earlier. But uh, but just in general, sort of the the theme that that use of the DC three and the, that cat and mouse game sort of yeah. brought me back into another era of of filmmaking, and and I felt it it could be interesting to have sort of that throwback mm -hmm. and that feel because it, it has has a different texture. And it's also brought me back to the early Bond films, which yeah. I I adored so much. Um, and then the film, um, could you talk about sort of developing the 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 themes of the film? I mean, it's. You know, it says a bit about what's going on with the environment these days, the whole sort of idea of, of um, everything being green, you know, the way that green is such a big mar sort of no. marketing tool these days. Uh, uh, you have to make sort of an interesting comment on that. Yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, we wanted to do make it about natural resources and how, how obviously these, those resources are, are dwindling. And uh, one of the things is what I realized uh, in the last few years going to a lot of, you know, sort of when you go to these uh, sort of parties or charities for green that you know people drive their prius but then <laughs> fly their private jets and and it's so, sort of this this hypocrisy that that we all all in a sense hypocrites and get green became sort of this 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 mar marketing slogan that you ha you have to be green but what does it really ma mean how green are people how serious do they take it how much uh, you know and so many people are pointing fingers oh, I'm doing something for the environment because I'm doing this this and this I think that uh, that that kind of, kind of uh, sort of idea I thought it was interesting and and uh, I thought it was interesting to have that villain who actually uses 
green mm -hmm. and being green for for to for his own gain, mm -hmm. and uh, because ultimately he's still a capitalist. Um, and I, I, f I feel like it, it has become so fashionable that a lot of people, they, they say, oh, if I'm green, that means I'm good. And I think we have to constantly question and always question ourselves and question organizations we come across. What do they really stand for? What is really behind them? How, what they, do they really do? Where does the money really go? And, and I think that's, I just thought it was an, was an interesting theme also in regard to water. You know, so many countries don't have access to drinking water anymore. And, and uh, I thought it would be an interesting theme just to slide in there uh, because so many people buying up water resources and, and I think it will be one of the major uh, themes in the 21st century. As we know, we're gonna run out of oil. I think water is, is gonna be uh, and having access to drinking water, which I think should be the right to every citizen right. on this world, uh, is going to be one of the main themes we're going to deal with. I want to. Uh, okay. Uh, we can open it up to the audience in a minute. I, I just want to ask you one thing, um, which is about sort of how your career started. I know that you moved to America from Europe, and you actually spent time here um, in this neighborhood and went to school at NYU. Could you talk a bit about those days and then how you got into feature uh, filmmaking? Yeah, I, I basically grew up in Switzerland in Davos in the mountains in a ski resort. And uh, then just before I uh, graduated high school, my parents lost all their money. And then I was lucky enough. I, I still sort of applied to NYU. I got in and then I had to find the money. So I found uh, a friend of the family who said, okay, I pay for the first year. I loan you the money to pay for the first year of school. And if you have talent enough, I will keep paying until you can graduate. Uh, so I was very fortunate. So I came to New York and uh, I couldn't speak that well. My, my English was, was, was not that great. But uh, I just was very inspired because I always grew up in sort of in the countryside. And I went to NYU and just did a lot of little short films and just tried to express myself visually as as much as I could. It was interesting actually at the beginning of when I came here and I couldn't speak English so well and we did this little films as voiceover and I couldn't write my own voiceover. So I made them without voiceover and I realized very quickly and I sort of carried that with me that often the less dialogue the better. The more you can say with images the better it is uh, because ultimately words often are here to support or explain an emotional arc of a character mm -hmm. and often you just can simply say that with images. Mm -hmm. which can sometimes be much stronger and more subtle than explaining it through dialogue or voiceover. Hmm. And, and anyway, I, I fell in love with New York, graduated here, and then made two documentaries and then moved to Los Angeles in the mid-90s. Yeah, okay. Uh, do we have any questions out here? Okay, go ahead. And I'll, I guess um, I'll repeat the question so everybody can hear it. Go ahead. The, yeah, the question is about, do you participate in the screenwriting process? How does that work for you? Uh, so it, it started that there was a screenplay was, uh, at the beginning from two writers. And when they asked me if I wanted to do the film, I said, I don't want to tell the story. And then I, after that, I, I said, but Paul Haggis, who is a director, writer, director, who wrote the Casino Royale, I thought I really liked what he did there. And I asked them if they would hire him, I would consider doing it. So. I then met with Paul and told him about the natural resources, running out of oil and dealing with wa theme of water and sort of what I had in mind was the was the the villain and bond sort of the overall idea and he he liked that and said yes I will I will start writing. He he was in the meantime he was very busy because he was working on his own fa film The Valley of Elah 
Eli or Eli, uh, Eli, yeah. Eli, the Valley of yeah. Eli, and was very busy. And as he was working on that, he was a little had very little time. But he gave me a draft, but it was a first draft and was unfinished. Uh, and we try, and then a writer strike was coming. So when we were starting to shoot the movie, we really didn't have a finished script. And uh, then when the strike finished, I ha there's another riot writer I brought in, a very young writer who worked with us. Uh, more on the script so it was much more of a, a process than ever I had before and, and it was more like like Paul worked more on scenes bit like the dramatic dialogue scenes between people sometimes and like for instance the whole Siena part I I figured out when I was location scouting I, I realized where I want them to be chased and originally they for instance was the dome they entered the church from below and uh, they were fighting their way up the scaffolding. I thought it was not very dramatic. So I thought it would be interesting to have that horse race and shot the real Palio horse race in Siena and then have them up going on the roof and then chase each other from the roof and then crashing through the top into the dome because I thought it would be a stronger dramatic arc and not using scaffolding, using the rope. So things like that, I, I just basically developed as I found locations. The same thing with the entire end sequence as well. So it's... Uh, it was sort of like going to a place and seeing what is there. I like the location and then finding the story around it. For instance, with the opera, uh, yeah. the, it was set in a conference center with sort of a UN setting with several mm. languages and Bond spying on the villains on Green and, his, and, and some of the other uh, villains. And I found that not that interesting visually. So when I saw the opera setting, I saw the eye being set on the lake, which I thought was... Uh, a beautiful setting and I thought it would really it's very Bond and I thought uh, uh, Tosca was playing from Puccini I thought that's sort of like a parallel and I could use some uh, of Tosca and inter sort of try to interweave it with the storytelling of the film and as in Tosca there's the moment they shoot at the prisoners and that moment the gun battle could start uh, from the Mexican standoff so it's sort of like a constant use uh, I found a location and then I thought okay what can I do to build a story around it it was interesting that this film, um, not, not all the Bond films um, relate to the previous film. I mean, this is um, the storyline here really draws on the previous film and the lost love of Vespa, uh, you know, really pr plays a, an interesting role in this film. So you sort of always have the last one, Casino Royale, in mind. Yeah. And that gives it an interesting quality. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and were you, did you have a lot of freedom to develop the story, even though you're doing sort of a franchise? Uh, yeah, I mean, the great thing is about Bond is you're dealing, you know, with Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson, the producers mainly, because they control the, the franchise. So it's a, pretty much a dialogue between them and you, and they're very filmmaker-driven. So I had a very positive experience with them. I felt they were incredibly supportive, and, and uh, it made the whole process very, actually, uh, quite, it, it was uh, quite, quite joyful because of that. Yeah. Uh, right down here. Okay, I didn't quite get the food reference. This is a, somebody seriously interested in food. So I guess the question is, if you do another action film, um, what? <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's more of an inside kind right. of joke. Okay. But, but which, you know, which obviously Noah's Kitchen is always preferable. But but the, the thing is, is uh, you know, in... I think, you know, usually on every film, food is so important, you know, and, and I'm like very much health food orientated, but, uh, and, and like to eat healthy, but it's, it's very hard to find, you know, good catering 
<laughs> especially on the on on smaller film it's it's hard because they can't afford it on the bigger films they have these huge crews so you know I, I i usually go back to trying to eat as simple as possible because if you're doing a film like this it's all about staying healthy because it's like a marathon you're like you're a year and alive under extreme pressure and six months of that time you're shooting under extreme pressure night day and night so it's all about staying healthy because once you get sick, you can't catch up anymore. <laughs> you must have eaten well in Siena, I'm assuming. Yeah, in Siena you eat well, but it's the, the, the pasta is like so heavy after a while. You're just like, you can't, I mean, the Italians love that. You know, I heard this yeah. thing, this great story when they did Upcalypse Now with in, in the Philippines. And Storaro, the DP, had his own pasta chef and his whole, whole crew every day. They had like their own chef and had their own like apparently superb pasta. <laughs> and I heard that Apocalypse Now. Was it true that that's the movie that turned you on to that, filmmaking? Yeah, that, that's, that's pretty true. I, I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I did see movies before on TV here or there, but that was the first film I saw in the movie theater in like uh, 1983. Wow. Wow. Okay. And your, your question? Well, the question is your attitude towards visual effects. Uh, that would mainly, I guess, relate to this film. Did you try to do a lot of physical um, work and uh, versus com sort of computer? I, in effects? general, in general, I preferred to do it practical. Uh, here in Quantum of Solace, it was mainly because we had a very uh, tight timeline, and we o I only had five weeks to cut the movie, and another like sort of six or seven weeks for sound. So we, with visual effects, if you don't have the time, then you rather. Uh, have less so uh, I tried to make do as much as, as possible practical but there's still a ton of visual effects in there which you just uh, are part of the storytelling but I always try to refer what to approach every scene what can I do practical you seem to enjoy sort of working out like the engineering of a scene or the um, the sort of choreography this the scene in, in the cathedral that you talked about with the ropes is so incredibly worked out in terms of uh, how complicated the action is? Is that something I, you enjoy doing? Yeah, I think in general, you know, everything is, is based, I think, on choreography in, in film. And if you block an, you know, a simple scene with two people, it's about choreography. It's always a dance, when to come close, when to find distance, when to, when, you know, how to shoot it and how to tell the story. But I, I, I love that. I think that's the be beauty is, is the blocking and the choreography and, and creating that. Okay, back here. Go ahead. The, you've done so many different genres uh, in your career so far. Is there any genre that you feel particularly tied to that you like? What? I, I think that the two like, dramas I'm more drawn to because it's more sort of what I connect with in my life. I think action is not necessarily... I mean, it, it was fun to do this, but it's not something oh, that I'm not really looking forward to do with doing another action movie. It's like, it's not... I, I, th I think it was a good ex experiment and experience, but... I dramas is definitely more what I'm ten, what I like. You know, I I love comedies, but comedies are the hardest to make people laugh. I you know, Stranger Than Fiction is almost sort of as funny as I can get, but <laughs> but I it's still Will Ferrell very tuned down, and and trying to be as as serious as in a in a sense, but. I think comedies are an incredible challenge, but I love them. And I must say, Strange and Fiction was the best experience I ever had because everybody was happy. There was so much happiness. I said, oh my God, everybody comes to work and you feel good. Like on a drama, I get usually, I get very easily depressed and very sort of, yeah, sort of in, in, like sort of in my own little cave I move around, which 
on Stranger Fiction, I was, uh, I was surprised. I was never depressed. I was always full of joy and just happy going to work. And it was, was definitely emotionally the best experience I ever had. And you did get Will Ferrell's be like most um, sort of realistic and powerful performance. So you got a great performance out of him. Um, and you know, you've always worked with great actors, but could you talk a little bit about, maybe you worked yeah. with, with him specifically in that film? I, you know, it was interesting when I met, when I first casted the movie, I was thinking, okay, what is easier? Is taking a dramatic actor and making the dramatic actor funny, or taking a comedian and making the comedian a little more serious? Ben, and I, you know, I was thinking, okay, if I would cast someone like Russell Crowe, how can I make him funny? And then I was thinking, as a director, and I think, okay, when I take uh, Will Ferrell, how can I make him more serious? And I met with Will, and I, my ideal person I had in mind was always sort of Peter Sellers. And uh, obviously Peter Sellers isn't alive anymore, but so I, I met with Will one day, we had breakfast, and I just thought that he, there's this, I, I just fell in love with him. I just thought he was amazing and interesting and layered, and I felt like he would be the right one to play Harold Crick. Yeah. And, uh, and we just spoke a lot about it, and and then rehearsed a little bit, but uh, we found very easily the tone of the of the piece, and and then it worked out really really well. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. So the comment is that your films are both very entertaining, but they're also very intelligent, and that specifically in the last two films you've dealt with political issues, dealt with the contemporary world. Is that something you want to do do more of? Um, I, so. I I think it's. A, 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 a like the world we live on right now, I think it's always important to provoke and have a certain controversy. If people like it or not, they can say, I hate your films, I love them. It doesn't really matter, but you sort of, I think we're living in, in very tricky times and either us as a human race, we're gonna wake up and realize that we have to change the course we're on or we stay asleep and we're gonna distinct ourselves. I think there's only these two options and I think my, I, I, what I realized, I can't, through my films when I was a teenager, I always said, oh, I, through stories I can change the world. I believe I can change the world through stories, only what I can do is change myself. But changing myself is already something I have control over and is, is very hard. And it, if I do it every day, just trying to, to do something good or, or not trying to, to hurt people, that's already, and, and all, all these things I could do on my own, which, which is hard enough. But I think if I'm telling stories, what I feel my responsibility as a storyteller filmmaker is, is to try to uh, sort of put thoughts out there and provoke. And that's why, you know, one of the reasons I did Bond, I said, okay, I wanted to see, even if I'm doing a, a commercial and entertaining film, uh, how can I just throw in some themes that might like inspire someone or provoke someone or make someone aware even you know people go and see it because of the action of the girls or whatever the reasons are or the or or all the you know the entertaining factors of it but I feel like that I'm reaching an audience there I don't reach with Kite Runner or Monsters Ball or movies they're really close to my heart so I thought it would be an interesting sort of experiment and I don't know if it paid off or not. Seems like it's paid off, I think. <laughs> and and I mean, in a way, what you're saying is that your films, um, you don't really think of them as escapist movies, because Quantum of Solace feels like it, to me, like it kind of reflects what the, you know, the sort of difficulty that we feel in today's world. It sort of captures the complexity and sort of ambiguity. So, you know, it gives you all the entertainment. You get all the action that you want to see in a Bond film, but. Yeah, I mean, I try to do that, and yeah. but, you know, it's, uh, I. 
me, it's hard for me to say, oh, I succeeded or I, I didn't. I, I just look at the film. I thought, okay, I, I set out. I'm setting out to do this, and I, I hope it, it works. But ultimately, the audience makes that judgment. If they like it, don't like it, what they get away from it, I only can do the best I can and believe. Oh, this is sort of what I set out to do. <laughs> okay. Um, anybody else? Uh, I mean, you see. Okay, right over here. Oh, could you? Are you already working on your next? Uh, I'm no, I, I'm here just. Uh, actually, I was here to I, to um, uh, just to see some friends, <laughs> and, and I love New York, <laughs> so just to hang out basically, and 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 come and stop by here and uh, <laughs> and be inspired <laughs> by New York. But uh, I'm working on like two, three things. I don't know what I'm going to do next. Uh, it's uh, all in development. So, I, but I'm going to make my decision in the next few weeks. Right down, in, right down here. Okay, so he's raising questions about global warming, you know, whether it's valid or not. He says you seem to clearly I, believe I, that I it's mean, a, mean a problem. For, for, for me, I think, I, I just think global warming is a reality and a fact. I don't, I don't even, I don't think it's, it's at this point questionable anymore, uh, just looking at the scientific evidence. And I think everybody, anybody who doesn't see it this way you know, it's their choice, you know, I'm not here. Uh, but for me personally, it is just a reality. And I think uh, that we, you know, I, I grew up in, in a place where the, you know, glaciers came all the way down and just in my lifetimes that they're, they're going back and, and one sees the weather pattern and all, all these things. And I think scientifically there's enough proof there, but you know, it's everybody's choice to, to, to believe one thing or another, and I'm, you know, I, I just see it as a not, as, as a, as a. It's not a question for me. It's just a, a reality. But I think all, you've also, in your travels, probably seen, you know, been to countries where it's an issue whether you, whether you can get drinking water. You know, we we have water all around us. So. Yeah, I I, th I think in regard to drinking water, you know, if you meet you're in Africa and you meet a woman who has to walk for six hours to get drinking water and her two-year-old pushes over the water and it breaks and she's so desperate that she beats her two-year-old to death death and 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 these kind of things happen and you meet these people and you actually understand where they're coming from and I, I believe you know that ultimately I, I think there's enough for everyone on that spaceship earth uh, but ultimately I think there's a a way we as human beings have to figure out a way what is what we need and what we understand what we don't need because for excess but i i think there is such a such a there's you know for whatever we have there are so many people that live a life what they can have and and i think we just have to be aware of it and and i and i'm not saying that you know that I'm here as an example to, to make things better or worse. I just think it's a reality we have to look at and, and figure out a path how we can find a way out of it. You, uh, you know, and one interesting thing about um, Monsters Ball is that it's a film that captures, you know, a side of America, this, the, the, the issue of poverty and how people live in poverty. Um, could you talk a bit about, about that film? And then, of course, in making that film, you, you know, you, you're cast, um, you know, one of the most glamorous women in the world, and she gives this amazing performance. Uh, uh, Monza's Ball for me was about breaking the circle of violence, you know, mm -hmm. ultimately. 
And uh, I think ultimately at the end of the movie, Letitia, Halley's character, has a choice. Either she's going to kill Hank, Billy Bob's character, or she's going to forgive him. And she forgives him, and that's ultimately what I believe in, is forgiveness, and that's why breaking the circle of violence. Um, I, you know, at the time, I, I just tried to objectively capture the, the life of those people, you know, because I grew up in, such, up in such a different environment and I went down to the south and it was a shock for me to a certain degree to how in, intense racism was there and still is. And, and, I, and it's just, I just tried to capture sort of the, 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 the spirit of, of that story as objectively as, as I could. But uh, I'm, you know, it, it was just a very emotional film to make, and and I'm I'm glad that uh, it found its way through Halle winning the Academy Award to to such a world, such a wide audience. Okay, right over here. So the question is about documentaries. You said that you you made some documentaries yourself. Could you talk about what what influence uh, documentaries have had on your films? I I love documentaries. I love watching them. I love making them. I. I'm a, more of an escapist. I always believe, you know, in, in a sense of, uh, like, I'm always escaping into, a, like, a dreamland or, or an illusion or the world I, I believe how the world could be. And, and in, in those journeys while I'm escaping, I, I always feel like uh, that it's, it's better settled in fiction because in documentary I have to stick to reality and I can't control reality. So I have to let go of it. So I realized very early on that I don't really belong into that world of documentaries because I always have to sort of find an escape. And, and ultimately in all of my films, there's hope at the end. And I'm trying to, to find that. And often in documentaries, you don't find the hope because you have to confront yourself with reality. And, and, uh, and that's a little hard for me. There's a bit of a, I mean, there's a bit of a, documentary element to the kite runner because of the casting of non-actors and the way that you respond to you know you, as a filmmaker you really responded to what, what it really is like in contemporary Afghanistan uh, yeah you know the kite runner was a very hard film to make it you know I spent some time in, in Kabul and in Afghanistan and then we shot the film right over the border of Afghanistan and, pa and Pakistan in, in western China in a place called Kashgar and uh, and the and it was a, just a very intense fil film to make. Um, but again, with that film, I just tried to capture and recreate the time of the 70s of Afghanistan and, and the beauty of, of Kabul at the time. And, and then as his journey brings him back to show the reality of, of today, which uh, again, just trying to capture what sort of what, what was happening. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the film, is again the, the theme of forgiveness comes through again and mm -hmm. redemption. Mm -hmm. Okay, right over here. So, as an, uh, the question is, as an artist, you're de sort of dealing with the, the um, struggle to get what's in your mind, your vision, into reality, and you're dealing with very pragmatic issues in filmmaking. So, how do you kind of balance that? Uh, I mean, I, I, you learn to compromise and to let go very quickly of, of things, and, and I think you know life is about is when, when, you, when you can let go easily of things, you can always find very quickly creative solutions and, and not just in, in film, but in life in general. It's all about letting go. The stronger you hold on to something, the, the, the pain, more painful it will get down the, the road and the, in, I think, to anything in life. And I, you know, 
often you know there, there's a moment you you want the blue sky or you want cl uh, cloudy sky and you can't control it and you try to to sort of work work sort of the weather patterns into your schedule or you just or you're just lucky but you know I, I come I always come from the philosophy whatever meant to happen is, is happening I I don't have control over it what I try to do is in pre-production to filter to be as prepared as I can and filter all these different variables in and hopefully my first AD schedules the schedule as flexible in regard to weather that we can have choices and sometimes you can't but but to get as close as you can to to your vision because ultimately you always have to compromise and and let go but I think that's also good I mean some filmmakers you know have the luxury that they always can get it their way because they have the money and the resources and can wait and wait and wait I never had that luxury so far sometimes those movies turn out to be masterpieces sometimes they turn out to be a disaster I often I still believe sometimes it's it's better to find creative solutions to things I don't think it's good to have too much money because I think money necessarily sol solves problems I think if you don't have the money then creatively you 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 find you find often better solutions do you also kind of look for risk it seems like if you look at your career you know it was um, in Monsters Ball, you know, it's a very risky performance for Halle Berry. You make that film, and then you do Finding Neverland, which is a period film. Um, you talked about the sort of danger involved in going near the Kite Runner, which is a, you know, or the James Bond franchise. It seems like you've sort of put yourself in these. Yeah, I, I think I think I, I, I thrive of that too. You know, to put myself in more vulnerable positions, and 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 I think to put yourself out in in a risky position, it makes me more creative, and and always know, and it makes me more like if I'm like a filmmaker, like let's say Hitchcock, who I love, but he makes ultimately the same film over and over because he knows the genre. Right. Uh, if you if I do films I don't know the genre of, or I, then I'm like. It's like I'm making a film for the first time. It's like I have to watch myself. I have to look what's going to happen. I can fail any moment, and I feel like I'm I'm so, I'm like a child who has to, has to learn to walk, and 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 that's the challenge to 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 find my way to to, to walk and and find my way uh, into the genre. So if you if they came to you and said, would you do the next Bond movie? You might say. They they did, uh, but <laughs> I I don't want to do it, and you know because I have I just did it, and and it and I I just don't feel I I want to want to do that. I mean you know, so not yeah. no not at this point. And I don't know if, if you could talk at all at all about your work with actors. I mean I I just there's so many great performances in your films, and um, you obviously pay a lot of attention to the visual style, but but your your work with actors is great. Is there anything I, about how you do that? I think actors are you know you you have. I work from real incredible actors to non-actors, and and so everybody needs different attention. Everybody needs something different. You have someone like Johnny Depp who is just brilliant and needs very little. You know, you you talk to him a little bit, and he says, "I can do it," and he does it for you whatever way you want. And he's just so creative and so incredible to work with. And then you need there's someone like Dustin Hoffman, which I go with him to the location before we shoot actually at the location. I rehearsed with him at the location. I usually, I, I worked with him twice, now I played out the part, and it's a very collaborative, intense rehearsal process. And then once he gets there on the day, it just goes very smooth. But every actor needs a different amount of attention or, or, or needs something different from a director, and the director has to figure out, you can't direct every actor the same way. It's not possible, it's like, because we're all diff different as human beings. Some, you know, you're in a relationship with someone and one, 
someone needs a lot of attention and someone else does, doesn't need so much attention. Uh, we all have different needs and you have to figure out what the needs are from your actor and how can you get the best from that actor. And I, you have to leave the room ultimately you know, of having your vision in place, but also letting magic occur. I think a director also always has to let, let some, some part of the performance has to be magic, and that's what you're trying to create is magic. And you can't rationalize magic. There's no recipe, uh, going back to food, like, you know, you, you can have the, the cookbook from Jamie Oliver, but you, you're still not Jamie Oliver because there's something he creates which is magical, and, and that's, I think, with everything li in, in like that in directing very similar. Okay, well, we're all in suspense about what you're going to give us for your next film, but um, I want to thank you for being here today. It's, yeah. it's been um, terrific. Thanks for sharing this with us. So. Thank you. Thank okay. you, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. So as this is being recorded for a podcast, check the iTunes store out soon. The next couple of weeks, you can download that for free. Thank you, everybody. Also, check out the website to our store, apple.com slash Soho, for upcoming events and workshops right here in our theater. Thank you, everybody. Have a great night.